Genetics isn't always black and white, and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories. Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. Today, I'm interviewing Caroline Lieber. Hi, Caroline. Good morning, Eleanor. Caroline Lieber is a longtime genetic counselor. She graduated from the Human Genetics Program at Sarah Lawrence College in 1980 and worked at Hackensack University Hospital in New Jersey for 18 years, where she served as manager for six years. After that, she served as director of the Human Genetics Program at Sarah Lawrence College for 15 years, which is where I met her. Caroline, so the first time I met you was actually when I was interviewing for as an applicant for the Human Genetics Program. I remember that day very well, <laughs> um, but probably less memorable to you. Well, I, I remember um, those years of, of doing interviews with applicants that they blend together. And what you find is that the applicants remember you sometimes better than you do them. However, having said that, I do remember Eleanor Griffith quite well, because she was um, not one to just play the role of applicant. She asked good questions. She was insightful. And she never let you get away with anything. So she, even as an as an applicant, that doesn't sound great. Oh well, that's the way you were. At least that's my <laughs> recollection. You you were always always questioning, always looking for the answers, always going to the next step. Even back then. Okay, I I, I think I think I'm going to take that as a positive review. It totally is. So so I realized in preparing for this interview that I have never actually heard from you. What led you into working in genetic counseling? I was a sophomore in college in 1973. I was on a pre-med track and an instructor in my human genetics course came in and talked about this new field of genetic counseling. So the field started at Sarah Lawrence in 1969 and I heard this lecture in San Diego in 1973. So she was, this instructor was ahead of the curve and I realized looking back that I'm pretty sure she had Marfan syndrome. Oh, that that was why she knew about the field. Uh huh. But once I heard it, she was so dynamic. And it was so intriguing to me that there was no question in my mind that that was what I wanted to do with my life. And so I transferred schools and went to a school that had a genetics degree. Um, and, you know, never looked back. My dad had wanted me to be a civil engineer. And because that's what you did in my family is everybody was engineers. And when I came home and said, I'm not doing that, I'm going into this other field, he embraced it, said, okay, great, you do what you need to do. And, um, you know, that was, I graduated from undergrad in 1976. And I started at Sarah Lawrence in 1978. What was it about that lecture? What did that woman say? Or what stuck with you that really inspired you to to change tracks that way? Still working in the medical field, but something quite different than a pre-med track? Yeah, it, it was, I think, the idea of 
the the nature of genetic conditions that just happen to people and the idea that in some way you might be able as an individual healthcare provider uh, help them through a tough time where there might not be other people that would understand. And that was pretty clear to me early on. As she talked about cases, she talked about different conditions. I felt like this is something that as many applicants have said to me, that really combines the the human part of what genetics is all about. So I always loved the science of genetics, but this was not being a bench researcher. This was not uh, being a doctor. This was really, in my mind, working with the families. So after you graduated, you spent a lot of time at Hackensack, and then at some point before I met you, you became the director of the genetic counseling program at Sarah Lawrence. What kind of, what was your path that took you there? Well, that's an interesting one also. I, um, I had reached a point at Hackensack where I felt as though I had done what I could there, and I realized, and it took me a while to figure it out, but I realized that I was really suffering from what I would call compassion fatigue and that I was not as available to the patients as I should have been. I mean, it was all the signs of burnout that, you know, makes somebody be less patient than they should be, who doesn't respond well in situations that are difficult. And so I knew that I had to take a step back. And and it was interesting that I had decided that I was going to leave Hackensack. I didn't know what I was going to do at that point. I But I knew I needed to, to step away from what I had been doing. And so, uh, you know, as I started looking around, the position at uh, Sarah Lawrence came up with Joan Marks retiring and so I stepped in and said, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to kind of focus differently from clinical work to training and education. And so I put my hat in the ring and I was lucky enough to get the job. So I'm, I'm curious. I feel like there would be some small degree of overlap between a genetic counselor role and um, being director of a program um, <laughs> where you could have sort of that same burnout. <laughs> well, um, yeah. But maybe like less less opportunity for sympathy for the people who are burning you out. <laughs> Just putting myself in those shoes, potentially. Well, it, it's interesting because the skill set that you're using as a program director of a genetic counseling program is the same skill set that you're using as a genetic counselor in a clinic. And so it's just a different audience. Um, so, you know, again, I mean, 15 years to do one job is a long time. And I did reach a point, um, where I was starting to think, all right, what's going to be my next step. And then life just took over for me. And in 2012, my dad died. And I mean, it, that was no surprise. He was 94 years old, but it, it opened up a new window for me to look at doing something different. And so while I had been thinking about changing things up, it made it very clear at that time that what I needed to do was to relocate myself to be near my mom. And so that's what I did. So I, I left Sarah Lawrence in the summer of 2013. And you've been in Southern California ever since? Yeah. Yeah. I live in the wonderful 
town of Ojai, which is populated by a lot of people like me who are um, in the second half of their life, let's put it that way, and lots of creative music and art and spirituality here in, in Ojai. So it's a great community. So going back to your time at Hackensack, you were there for so many years, but so long ago, I'm very curious which cases at this point in your life have still really stuck with you. Well, there's a couple, but I, and I think that, that what it says to me, I mean, that's now almost 20 years ago that I left Hackensack. And as I look back on that, the tools that we had, Eleanor, there, there were no tools. I mean, you know, you could do a karyotype and, and you could do prenatal screening that was kind of in its infancy. I mean, we were really beginning to learn about what were the different things you could do. And so a lot of what we did was what I think I'd hoped it was going to be, which was supporting the families through these very difficult situations where life was out of their control for a period of time. And the cases that stick with me are those cases where I had the opportunity to do that. Um, one of them in particular was a family where the the couple had come to see me and they had had two losses, one um, a late stillbirth and the other a newborn that died with some syndrome that we didn't know what it was. And even in looking back on it, I'm not sure that we still know what it was. But what we did and what we tried to do was to support that family as they went through the next stages of their life. So we, you know, we met with them and we talked with them and told them we thought it was probably a recessive condition because they had had a boy and a girl affected with this. And... Um, they had two kids who were living and fine. And then she came back a few years later pregnant again. And she was uh, late 30s, early 40s. I don't remember exactly how old she was, but she was definitely in the quote-unquote advanced maternal age category. And um, she had very clearly decided that she was going to continue this pregnancy under any circumstances. And so we just provided her with an opportunity to make the decisions with her husband, who was very supportive, that were going to be in keeping with how they felt their life should be lived. And um, it was clear when she came in for prenatal diagnosis that the fetus was affected with whatever this condition was. Uh, she bravely went on through the pregnancy and late in the pregnancy asked me if I would be there at the delivery and we arranged for her to deliver at a small community hospital where there was no DNR because we felt, based on what had happened in the previous pregnancies, that this child probably would not survive. And so it was all set up so that she and her husband could have the baby and spend whatever time that life would take uh, and when you say, when you say that it was clear on prenatal diagnosis that the baby had the same condition, yeah, um, how was it clear? Since you said you weren't sure what um, what syndrome it was, was it ultrasound well, findings? Yes, and and what we saw was a series of contractures that had been clearly identified in the two previous 
affected kids. And so it was quite clear on ultrasound at 16 weeks that this child was going to have the same thing. So, you know, again, I mean, we didn't have any tools. We didn't have the kinds of testing that they have now. It was all done on, all right, this is what we've seen in the past. We're going to do the best we can to try to educate this family and and then, again, support them in whatever they think is the right way for them to move forward so that they don't look back and wish they had made different decisions. That, to me, is the ethos of genetic counseling is that you're there regardless of the decision a family makes, you want to be there to help them so that as they move forward in their lives, they can look back with a sense of uh, knowing that the decision they made was the right one at the time. Yeah, and the right one for them. And that's, yeah, and that's what we did. And so this baby girl was born and they put her in an incubator and kind of made her warm and put her in the side of the delivery room. Uh, It was very powerful for me. And three days later, when mom went home, the baby went home with them because she was breathing on her own. And so what they thought was going to be an early demise ended up being a child that they took home with them. And she is alive and well now, 20-something years later. Uh, She's married. And she works in... Uh, helping individuals with disabilities in vocational, technical kinds of things. So she's very active. I mean, it's a, it's a true success story. I, I have not been in contact with a family in a long time, but I think about them a lot because they were so brave in the way that they handled the whole thing. And does she have disabilities kind of consistent with what you were seeing on ultrasound, um, issues with her bones or limbs or no? She does. She does. She she doesn't walk. She's in a wheelchair. I mean, she can, but not for long periods of time. Um, her, you know, she gets around mostly on a motorized wheelchair because I think it's easier for her and, you know, just less taxing. There's, she's had a lot of health issues. But, you know, again, she takes after her parents. She's a very brave person. She just this is my life. This is what I have to do. I want to make a contribution. And so that's what I'm going to do. Uh-huh. So, to me, it's a, it's a wonderful story. And I, as I said, I, I think about them a lot. Yeah. And you are still in touch with them to some extent or have been over the years. I have kept up with them through colleagues at Hackensack, but I have not been in contact with them directly in probably 15 years. How, how do you think that case might have been different if it were happening in a clinic today? Or do you think it actually would have been the same for this particular case? I think for this particular couple, it would have been the same. Uh, They were information seekers. They wanted to know as much as they could so that they could be prepared for whatever was going to be happening in their lives. And so if there had been testing available back then, I think they would have done it. Mm Mm-hmm. But I don't think that it would have changed the way they handled the pregnancy. They felt very strongly that uh, their faith and their religion were supporting them in the decisions that they were making. And I don't think that would have been any different. Yeah. 
And do you feel like besides um, you as the genetic counselor at Hackensack, do you feel like they were supported by doctors um, at Hackensack too? Or do you think that there was like any pushback that they got um, about the decisions they were making? Yeah, I think they got some pushback. Uh, The geneticist with whom I worked was great and very supportive, but that's just the way he was. But the doctors at this little hospital were having a very hard time with the idea that what are you going to do? You know, you're going to deliver this baby who has clearly some health conditions going on. We don't know what the outcome is going to be once it's born. And you want to deliver here where we can't do anything. And, and, you know, they felt, I think, uh, in the crosshairs that if anything had gone wrong, it would have been their responsibility. Now this family was not like that. You know, they were very clear about what they wanted to do. So in a lot of ways, that made it easier. And, you know, my role became that of absolutely the support person who could say, I will, you know, advocate for you in whatever it is you feel that's the right thing to do. And so that was easy. Harder might be, um, you're, at least you're making me think of cases where the role is more um, helping patients make a decision when it's yes. hard for them to make a decision yes. one way or the other. And it's interesting, Eleanor, because the cases that stick out to me the most are the ones where it wasn't about making the decision as much as it was about somebody being very clear about what they wanted to do. And then as the genetic counselor, being the advocate for them to do what they wanted to do in a healthcare system that doesn't always support the idea of people making decisions that long-term might be expensive and um, emotionally difficult. So there's another lady that comes to my mind, and she, and she was incredible. She was a uh, 43-year-old woman. She was pregnant for the first time. She It was not a planned pregnancy. She was not married. She didn't have a support system around her. And again, go back 20 years ago where family life was generally around a male husband and a female wife, you know, this heterosexual kind of relationship. And um, she didn't, she didn't fit in anywhere there. And, but she was so excited about this pregnancy. She just was thrilled. This was like the best thing that could have happened. And then she came in for prenatal diagnosis and again, back then, a lot of what genetic counselors did was in the prenatal realm. So you did you did some some adult genetics and some pediatric genetics, but at that point, that was when prenatal diagnosis was kind of taking off, and so there was a lot of focus on that. And so she came in; she had a older, pretty conservative doctor who did his own amniocentesis, and so we did the amnio. It came back uh, showing a trisomy 13. And the doctor tried so hard to tell her that she should not go ahead with this pregnancy. And, um, you know, you're asking for heartache. This isn't going to end well. So many things that we know about the natural history of trisomy 13. But she didn't want to hear it. She really felt strongly that this was her one chance to be pregnant. And whatever this life was going to be, she was going to take it and she was going to embrace it. And she was going to do everything she could for this baby. And 
I spent a lot of time with her just talking and and kind of um, hearing how she was thinking about it. And so we got through the pregnancy. She had the baby, and it was born and very clearly affected with trisomy 13 with the the features that you see typically, um, facial features and extra fingers and, you know, all the things that are kind of the hallmarks of that condition. And she looked at this baby and all she saw was this, you know, lovely baby. Uh, the baby, the baby did not live long and that was okay for her. Again, it was the decision that I have to go through what this life is going to be with this child. And that's what she did. And talking with her afterwards, she said, you guys told me I didn't believe you. I didn't think that that you were right. I was convinced that there was an error, that the baby was going to be fine. In some ways, I'm glad I made the decision. I'm very glad I saw the baby because now I don't, you know, have visions in my mind of something else. All those things that you learn about how people respond in situations like this. And so, again, it was one of those where I felt so much like we had done right by this woman, we had done right by this baby, and and that she could go on in her life and feel like I made the decision that was the right decision for me. That's interesting that you're spending all that time talking with her and she was hesitant to accept the diagnosis, and yet for her, actually delivering the child was a really important part of accepting the diagnosis and still like spending time with, with the baby, even if it was very short. Yes, and, and remembering the beautiful things about the baby that everyone who has had a newborn baby looks at them and says, wow, look at this beautiful ear or whatever it is. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, not being totally clear about that, but, but she was able to find those things that were beautiful about her baby. And, and, you know, so uh, the advocacy piece of genetic counseling, as I'm sitting here talking about it, I think for me has always been a very important part of the the clinical practice is that even when there's that doctor saying this isn't the right thing to do, if you know that that's what your patient wants, and again, when they're clear, it's easy to be their advocate. That's really interesting. You're ma- you're making me wonder how many genetic counseling, like how many people see like how we rate most of us like advocacy versus decision making versus other components. I haven't really thought about it in those discrete ways. Well, and, and, you know, now there's so much more in the way of technology and so many more things that you can learn and find out that maybe in some ways it makes decisions for people easier. I don't know. But I think that that advocacy piece becomes even more important that in, in you know, light of this huge amount of information that you can throw at people, that there isn't as much the possibility to say, we don't know what this is. I mean, we, we know so much more. And I think in the healthcare system, there's still this push to say, we don't want to bring into the world, if you will, babies or children who don't have the best start on life that they possibly could. And so supporting somebody who wants to continue a pregnancy because that's the right thing for them, I think, I think in some ways it's harder now than it was back then. Because there, there's just a mountain of information that, you know, um, you could say, well, why would you want to continue knowing this, that, or the other thing? Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah, and I, I think more to your point, since there's more testing options, there's more potential for diagnosis with the kind of assumption being or the medical reason for testing being, um, you know, to not continue with the pregnancy if it's a positive diagnosis. Whereas in reality, a lot of patients really want that information, like the first information-seeking family you were talking about or even your 43-year-old patient, um, where they do want the diagnosis, but it doesn't change their decision to continue the pregnancy. Exactly. And, and, And actually, an interesting thing that I have seen in this a generation of people that includes you and my kids is much more strongly a sense of I want to use this information to make the best decision for me. So that decision may not be the ending of a pregnancy that has some kind of a diagnosis. I, I think that I've been surprised by the strength of the feeling of Uh, young people in your generation who feel that, okay, I'll take the information, but I want the information to arm myself. So kind of what we were trying to do back then, I see it coming more from the young people now. Um, That's very anecdotal. Well, it helps that we can, it helps that we can Google things at least like before. Yes, that's (laughs) right. When you walk in, when you walk into your physician's office, like that's the first time maybe you're hearing about a lot of things. And now if someone is an information seeker and they want to know information and be more prepared, it's not as difficult to find. I mean, it's definitely easy to find a lot of misinformation right. <laughs> and to be confused by what you find, but there is information out there. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that that, it, that sense of empowerment is so much related to, well, everything that's happened. I mean, so many things that have changed with regard to technology and the internet. And, you know, you become as a parent, and I did see this as, as over the last five years as I've been doing some consulting work, um, working with a company called Council, based out of San Francisco, and they have done a lot of work with uh, carrier screening, um, panel screening for a variety of different conditions. And it's been very interesting how the parents have become involved who have a child with a condition, they become the experts. So the doctors aren't the experts. It's the people that are living with the conditions. And and that sense of uh, appreciating and respecting them as players in the healthcare field, whereas 20 years ago, the doctors were the experts. And that's not the case anymore. I think it's changed dramatically in that way. Well, it's hard. I mean, with more information out there and more testing possibilities, but still for so many rare conditions, especially like thinking about expanded carrier screening, Mm -hmm. like even if a doctor was pretty good with genetics, even if someone does full-time prenatal counseling, it's really not possible to be an expert in all of these disorders. Um, So it really makes even more sense that the patients who actually have it and, you know, spend time living it, but also like look for and... Um, you know, have like looked into information specifically on the one condition that's most relevant to them really would be the ones best positioned. And that there's a respect for what they bring to the table, which is, I think, I think a big change in 20 years that, you know, they, they are part of the equation now. And, and um, that whole idea of how do you educate a public 
about all of these different conditions to me is one of the real challenges of moving forward in the genetic counseling field. So how do we become innovative? How do we look at ways in which we can take these tools that are out there? I mean, genetics by its nature is based on technology and, you know, really innovative science. How do we, how do we take those tools that are at the very heart of what genetics is as a field um, and apply them to patient and healthcare provider education without having to sit down face to face in an hour session and making sure that you, you know, do go through every single detail of whatever a condition is. I mean, it's just not feasible anymore. And so looking at ways of using technology to do videos that are educationally based or using teleconferencing or, uh, you know, what other ways are there that we haven't thought of yet that we can stay abreast of all of the information that's out there and make sure that we still empower the patients to make the best decisions for themselves. How, how do you see, like, with all of those different technology possibilities, like, is there a way where you see that the genetic counselor would be best utilized, differently utilized from before, or not not necessarily in one clear way? I don't know that it's any one clear way, but I think that one of the things that has been, there's been a real tension is the genetic counselors who work in a clinical setting through a hospital or, you know, healthcare center, and genetic counselors who are working in industry, in laboratories, and other settings that don't have that same face-to-face clinical interaction. So there's a, I think there's a, a ca- chasm, <laughs> a chasm in the, in the different perspectives and experiences. I'll go with that. I'll go with that. And, and not being supportive of the fact that we're really all trying to do the same thing, uh, which is to help whoever our client is. So if the client is the doctor, if the client is the patient, that we're trying to help people have as much information as they can that is true and accurate so that people can make decisions as they go forward in their lives. I mean, I, I that part of it has not changed to me, but coming up with ways that there's a sense of all of us working together in a collaborative way, that's a struggle. Yeah. I do think it's nice to see, or I guess I'm kind of tentatively optimistic. I think like for me, for instance, working in clinic, but then in industry and then back to kind of clinic, private practice, I think with more genetic counselors switching between, it's it's kind of helpful. It's like interesting, um, you know, having if someone works at, at a commercial testing laboratory and they go back into clinical practice, there's a different perspective. And same like going into industry from clinic, there's a different perspective. So I'm kind of right. hopeful that over time that does get kind of mixed up a little bit. And, and that, again, there's support for people doing those things, that it's not like you've gone to the dark side if you go into industry. It's just not like that. I, I think that the genetic counselors with whom I've worked, I mean, their their goals for what this is all about are the same as if you're working in a clinic. And, and so, you know, to have this chasm, as you describe it, I, I find troubling. Um, I feel like here we are in a situation where genetic counseling is a field that is so sought after. They're looking for genetic counselors. They want people to be out there doing this kind of work because they realize 
the training that we have is unique and puts us in a position where we're the best people to work with patients or other clients uh, so that we're sought after and there's not enough of us out there. And so to me, the, the idea is to come up with innovative ways to train people to become genetic counselors that supports the ethos of what genetic counseling is. And that is non-judgmental, uh, unconditional in the way you look at whatever the problem is in front of you, and that you as a counselor can support a two-way communication so that it's not that I know everything and I'm going to tell you. I'm going to work with you to hear your story. The story becomes more important over time in my mind. And and so if we can keep that in, my, in mind in terms of um, coming up with innovative ways to train genetic counselors, to educate the public, all those different things. I mean, wow, we, we are in such a great position and we need to just jump on board with uh, coming up with new ways to train people to become genetic counselors. Now, having said that, I appreciate the fact that there is a set of standards and I don't, I'm not looking to compromise that. I'm not looking to say, well, you know, we'll just get them out there, get them out there. I don't, it's not the way I feel at all. But um, I think that there needs to be a, a sense of open-mindedness about looking at new ways of doing this. As you've been at council, I know at some point a few years ago, you had some genetic testing done through them. <laughs> I think part of a pilot project yes. and part of the point was to give feedback on the user experience, the online interface, and you've written about it elsewhere. But I'd love to hear a little bit about that experience and then know, did that experience shape at all how you're thinking about genetic testing and counseling and advocacy now? and where you think genetic counselors could be best used or how we should think about being more innovative. Okay, yes. Yeah. So it, it was a very interesting experience. And, and what I did was council was developing its um, user interface. And so I said to them as a you know consumer, I want to go through this process. I want to see what the process is like. I want to see where there might be ways that... Uh, the interface isn't clear or that it could be tweaked or is it the way you want it? All of those things. And so I decided to go through, I had had a uh, carrier screening done some years before through council. And so I was somewhat familiar with council, which is how one of the ways I ended up working with them as a company. I, I think the world of those people, I think that they really do an incredible job there. And uh, so anyway, I decided to do the, uh, cancer screening, which at that time was breast cancer screening. And I spit in the cup. And you have no, no family history. Like there was no like clinical criteria driven reason for you to do this. It was just the, um, to give feedback. No, there was nothing in my family history that was unusual. It was really very much the idea is I want to see what this process is about there's nothing in my family. It's going to come back. It's going to be fine. I mean, that was really how I was looking at it. And so I sent my sample in. I got a call some weeks later from one of the genetic counselors who said, 
I'm calling to tell you that your test results came back and it appears that it's positive. And I was completely undone. I mean, I didn't even, and I know, I know this particular genetic counselor quite well, uh, but I, I, I didn't even know what to ask. I, I was just stunned. And I found that I went through all of the reactions people go through when they get this kind of result. And so for me, being on the other side of the table, if you will, not being the counselor, but actually being the, the client, was an interesting experience. And, and so w- what I learned from it was that I knew what to do. I knew who to call on. Once the, you know, the shock wore off, I could call all my genetic counseling colleagues, particularly those that work in the cancer field, and say, I got this result, what does this mean? And what I thought about, one of the main things I thought about is, I know what to do. What about those people that are out there? They get this kind of information, and they don't even know where to start. So the idea of how do we educate the public became a a real focus for me. Not Yes, you have to educate the physicians, but if you're going to be offering these kinds of tests, they're out there, we've got the technology to do it. We've got to come up with some better ways for the public to be uh, in the know, to understand what it is that you're taking on when you do this kind of testing. So over time, what became clear was this was very early on in uh, breast cancer testing after the um, myriad uh, case was settled and other people could get into doing this kind of testing. So there were a lot of labs out there doing it. I don't think there was a lot of data. What you had was the data that was coming out of individual labs. And so there were discrepancies. So what appeared to be something that was a positive result in one lab might appear to be a variant of unknown significance in, a, in another lab. And so there wasn't a way in which the data was being shared uh, and there wasn't enough of it apart from Myriad's data at that time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's probably still true today to some extent, but at this point there's a maybe disorganized sharing, but still more sharing and more labs that have been doing testing for longer. And there's the prompt study. So yeah, that's, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought that that was kind of very earlier stages when you were initially getting these results back to. Well, and a lot of what came out of that was the idea of developing ways in which people could share their data. And, and so I think that became really important to, to develop a database of a lot of people so that you could look at the data a little bit more clearly And so anyway, over time, what became clear is that what I have is uh, been reclassified to a VUS or variant of unknown significance and and that um, it's, uh, you know, you're, you're never quite clear what you do with these things. And so I still am in a situation where I do a fair amount of breast surveillance screening because that is what my doctor and I came up with as the thing that was going to work the best for me. And um, I'm fortunate that my insurance company has been supportive of doing that. So it's a combination of doing MRIs, ultrasounds, and mammograms. And, um, you know, it's, it's been able to lay it to rest a little bit for me. The other piece of it that comes in here is that I have a sister who 
at age 52 had a DCIS and she had surgery to remove it. And so, you know, when this was all going on, I was extremely worried about her. She ended up having um, screening done and she carries the same variant I do. She has since had screening as well and she seems to be fine. She's that she had this now what 13 years ago. So, and she seems to be fine. But that's where it got worrisome for me. And then the last piece let me just add in there is that um at that point my mother was living but she had fairly significant dementia and she, you know, couldn't I I couldn't get any sense of trying to understand the family history from her. So we ended up um doing the screening on her to find out whether or not she carried the same variant and she did not. So we made the the conclusion that it came from my dad's side of the family and that was a little tricky because I have uh nine cousins on that side of the family who I felt obligated to let them know about this information. And, you know, it was, again, it was one of those things where I felt like if I don't tell these people and one of them ends up with a problem, I, I can't live with myself. So I ended up um, making phone calls and writing letters to those people that I haven't been in touch with in a long time just to say, I just want you to know that this is in the family. And was that was that at the time when you were still thinking of it as a po- like a true positive, a mutation or a variant at that point when you were getting in touch with them? It, it was all through that. So we moved from the positive to the variant while all of that was going on. But I still felt like it was important that they know that information. And everybody was, quite frankly, sort of like, yeah, OK, fine. <laughs> no big deal. Yeah. Uh, nobody was terribly upset or concerned about it. But but my generation, so there are 13 of us in that generation. And so there's a lot of grandkids or kids in the next generation down, not grandkids, kids in the next generation down. Those were the ones that I was worried about. And, you know, in talking with my own kids about it, they were like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But I think that it's important for them to know, um, just like it's important to know all of that information. And, and uh, it becomes part of how you view healthcare now. It empowers you. If you know that kind of information, then you can make decisions as you move forward in your own healthcare, you know, world, uh, how you want to deal with those kinds of situations. So, you know, for me, I made the decision that was the best decision for me in light of what I knew at that time so that I didn't look back and say, I wish I had handled this differently. What do you wish that people knew about genetic counseling? Very basic question. (laughs) Um, You've worked in the field for a really long time, and you've been talking about the changes and where you hope it would move to, um, a lot about the advocacy roles that genetic counselors play. But what do you think are still misconceptions that either patients have or doctors have or commercial laboratories have? What do you wish that people just were more aware of related to genetic counseling? Wow. That's a, it's a hard question to answer with one thing. Um, I would say I wish that we were more well-known as a field. Um, I felt that way for a long time. I mean, it's still a situation where you walk up to people, although less now, but and you say, yeah, I'm a genetic counselor, and they say, what's that? You know, So there's still... And over, like wishing that they knew what we were. Yes, <laughs> yes, that there was a that there was a focus on public education or a marketing 
program that was broader than what it is right now to let the general public know that we're out there. If there was one thing, that would be it. So, you know, you go into the schools, Eleanor, you know this, you go into the schools, you go to the high schools, you go to the middle schools, you go to the colleges, you do all these talks, you speak to doctors, you, and it still feels like, are we really making an impact? Are we really at the point where people understand what genetic counseling is? And I think the answer is no. Well, those are tiny like ways of like chipping away at it in a tiny way. And then genetic counseling is different things at different points to different people, <laughs> which means yeah. it might, it might yes. be hard in some ways to have, to really have like a really broad awareness when a lot of people, you know, like learn about it from their own individual perspective or experience. I feel like sometimes when I meet people and they don't know what genetic counseling is, I'm like, oh, so things must be going well. That's good. <laughs> or, or I like or, that. Or, you know, like, yeah, your doctor probably should have referred you. What are you, you going to do? <laughs> you know? So Right, right. And, and, and learning how to be diplomatic in all of that. Mm-hmm. So that's the other thing I think genetic counselors do really well is that they, they understand the art of communication and how to talk to people in ways that are not um, either humiliating or uh, arrogant or antagonistic they're they're very good at diplomacy and you know working behind the scenes to make things happen learning how to talk in ways that helps people who are overwhelmed in their lives with these you know life-changing genetic conditions to accept and learn how to deal with them that that it this doesn't mean you're a bad person it doesn't mean that you did something wrong it doesn't mean that you know, all the things that people think that, that I'm being punished for some reason to just be with them and sit with them and hear their story in a way that lets them know that no matter what, you're going to be there for them in ways that I think other people maybe can't. So it's, I mean, that, that part of the field still strikes me as so incredibly rewarding. That's the thing that I think keeps people coming back. You know, that's why you do it. That's why as a genetic counselor, you stay in it for as long as you do. I will say, I, you know, I heard about the field when I was 19. I am now 64. That's a lot of years to be involved in this field. And I love it as much today as I did back then. I mean, it's, it was for me, I knew this is what I wanted to do with my life, that, that this was my call to action. This was my, my way of being involved in something that really mattered. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, My pleasure. When I get up to a million downloads, everyone will have heard of Genetic Counseling. There you go. There you go. I'm a few interviews in now, so I'm hopeful that I'll keep kind of working out all the technical glitches and the sound on this can be amazing. Yeah, no, this this has been fun. I appreciate you letting me do it. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.